welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss a classic work of New Testament scholarship. I'm Laura Robinson. And I'm Ian Mills. And we are PhD candidates at Duke University. Today we're discussing Morna Hooker's 1973 article, Were There False Teachers in Colossae? It was published in Christ and Spirit in the New Testament. This is a really important article for the question of Colossians' contingency. So what we're talking about when we talk about contingency is why did Paul write each of the letters that he wrote? We know from a lot of his letters that he would plant a church and then later keep in touch with them. Or in the case of this letter, this is to a church he had never actually been to before. The same thing happens in Romans. So the thing that we're always looking for when we read Paul is trying to understand the circumstances from which this letter arose, why Paul wrote them a letter and why he wrote them this letter in particular. So this is more obvious than things like Galatians, which are very clearly written quite stridently against people who are preaching circumcision to the Galatians and Paul is writing to get them corrected. So the question that we're asking with Colossians is, why was this letter written? Is there a particular problem in Colossae that Paul is trying to address when he sends him this letter? It is an axiom of Pauline scholarship that Paul is addressing specific situations. He is a historical figure writing in a historical situation, writing to address historical and specific problems in churches that he's either founded or has some influence upon. Now, there's a particular problem with the letter of Colossians. You see, scholars, and this goes back to antiquity, have different estimations of the size of the Corpus Paulinum. How many letters of Paul are authentic? Scholars universally agree that Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, 1st Thessalonians, Philippians, and Philemon were written by the historical Paul. Scholars almost all agree that 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, 3rd Corinthians, the Epistle of the Laodiceans, and the Seneca and Paul correspondence were not written by the historical Paul. That leaves us with three letters what's called the Deuteropauline letters, that is, 2 Thessalonians, Colossians, and Ephesians. And on these, scholarship is split. And in a New Testament review first, dun, dun, dun. Laura and I are split. <laughs> we disagree on how many letters the historical Paul wrote. I hold to a seven-letter corpus. For the purpose of this show, I hold to an eight-letter corpus. I don't want to plant a flag one way or another on Ephesians and Second Thessalonians, but I do think that of the Deuteropauline letters, I think Colossians has the strongest claim to authenticity. I think more likely than not, Paul didn't write Colossians, and Laura thinks more likely than not that he did. Yeah. This matters because Morna Hooker does think that Paul wrote Colossians. Uh, she thinks that this is an authentic Pauline letter that Paul wrote from prison, to a church he had never interacted before to give them pastoral wisdom and advice, and possibly, which is the sticking point of this article, to counter some false teachers. Uh, this is not how all scholars read Colossians. Some people think of this as a Pauline forgery that is intended to correct some later distortions in the way that Paul's letters are interpreted or the way in which Pauline Christianity was practiced. Ian's going to fall a lot more in that camp, but today we're playing ball with Marna Hooker, who thinks this is authentic. And it's worth noting that her argument works under either view. Forged letters will sometimes address specific ideologies or specific heresies, and there's no reason an authentic letter couldn't be doing what Morna Hooker is arguing that it does, which is not addressing any specific teacher, but addressing general sociological pressures. So if you've listened to our Martin episode, you know what mirror reading is. That is, reconstructing Paul's opponents through what he has to say 
against them. And in that we just stressed the problem of overly speculative mirror reading. That is, anytime Paul says X, his opponents must have said not X. And Hooker is going to say that a people who reconstruct the opponents of Paul in Colossae, based on the Epistle of Colossians, are doing this sort of over-speculative mirror reading. We're going to go over some of the options, how people have reconstructed the opponents, who they think they were. But Hooker's thesis is that these are too credulous. More likely than not, Paul is simply addressing general, common, sociological pressures, things that might come from Jewish and or pagan neighbors that would be felt by the Colossians, and just exhorting them to remain faithful in spite of these things, and giving polemically charged descriptions of these opponents that may not actually reflect their own self-understanding. In order to determine whether or not we actually can read an opponent out of this text, or if that's invalid, uh, Hooker is going to zoom in on a couple key passages in Colossians that might give evidence of whether or not Paul is writing this letter with a particular opponent in mind. Uh, the first place we'd start with a lot of this is Colossians 2, that chapter where Paul starts to get into a very um, corrective mode of writing about certain worship practices, about things that you should not do. See that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Let's scroll down a few verses to verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as though you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So the question there is, are there people that Paul is writing against who do say do not handle, do not taste, or do not touch, who are trying to take people, uh, quote, captive with empty philosophy? We should pay attention to the weirdness of these two things combined. We have Paul polemicizing against philosophy, human tradition, and elemental spirits, at the same time as we have him describing pressure to participate in Sabbaths and new moons, traditionally Jewish festivals, as well as dietary restrictions. And this is the classic problem. So we have notes of the philosophical opponents from 1 Corinthians, and the Jewish opponents from Galatians, and maybe Romans, and maybe Philippians, and then there's a mention of worship of angels. We're going to get to more in a bit. I'm in the middle of Colossians 2, and these elemental spirits, which seems, you know, maybe proto-Gnostic, or maybe like Merkaba mysticism. So what we have is we have Paul critiquing a bunch of different things that are elsewhere associated with different groups in early Christianity and not often, at least not in our early evidence, combined. Mm -hmm. Could these all be the same guy, you know? So people who have argued there's a specific opponent in mind here generally subscribe to one of four dif different views of the opponents. Uh, the first is that Paul's opponents are practitioners of Merkaba mysticism, which is a Jewish mystical tradition of performing certain mystical rites or passages in order to ascend into heaven and worship God in the presence of his throne room alongside angels. So this actually, there's a line in Colossians about uh, not taking part in the worship of angels. The argument here is that that's not saying don't worship an angel. It's not an objective genitive. It's a subjective genitive of wanting to participate in the worship that angels are doing of God. Great way to illustrate the subjective objective genitive problem is the phrase love of God. Love of God in English can mean two different things. It can mean God's love for us, and that would be a subjective genitive, or it can mean our love for God, which would be an objective genitive. And both can be expressed with the phrase love of God. In the same way, worship of angels could be the angels worshiping, or it could be 
are worshipping angels. Mm -hmm. So people who take this first view think that what Paul is writing against is the practice of mystical worship that wants to ascend to the heavens and have this visionary experience of the throne room of God. So Lightfoot famously argued that Jewish opponents here were Essenes. The notes about calendar observances and dietary restrictions and a general asceticism all correspond to Josephus' description of Essenes. Furthermore, Josephus notes that Essenes had a particularly high view of angels, um, which again, there are some correspondences here with the people Paul is addressing in Colossians. A somewhat outdated view is the idea that Paul is writing against a kind of proto-Gnosticism. This is the Colossian hymn in chapter one about Christ being the uh, firstborn of all creation and the image of the invisible God as reacting to a Gnostic belief that sees Jesus as part of a hierarchy of spiritual beings and worships Jesus alongside this larger pantheon of of gods and demons and uh, in spirits. This is a little outdated. There's not a lot of evidence for Gnosticism or proto-Gnosticism in the first century. So this view is not really not very well tested anymore. There's very little evidence that Gnosticism pre-existed Christianity or was contemporary with Paul. It seems to have been a second century movement. The last option is the make your own heresy option. Um, this is the Jewish syncretic view. Uh, Carson Moo have argued for this. Most recently, Scott McKnight's commentaries argued for something like this. And this is, you just combine all the things that are in Colossians and ignore the fact that we don't have independent attestation to such a group existing in the first century. And you say that there was a Hellenistic syncretism of Neoplatonic elements with Jewish elements and you make up an opponent. And here it's worth returning to the methodological point raised by Martin. Martin, when he was doing a mirror, read of, mirror reading of Galatians, said, we first should start where views are explicitly attributed to other people. And once we move past that to other things Paul says, we are only secure in identifying those as a description of his opponents when we can independently corroborate that with other witnesses to such an ideological group. So he used the Pseudo-Clementines and showed the Pseudo-Clementines matched Paul's explicit references, and then some of his other points only made sense as a response to views also attested in the Pseudo-Clementine literature. Okay, so Colossians, you can't do this. We don't have evidence, we don't have writings um, that any such Jewish syncretic view of this sort existed, and it's really difficult to find evidence of really any of these options existing in the first century Colossae. So th- these are the four options for a particular opponent in uh, in Colossae. What we're going to see in this is that Hooker is skeptical of all of them. She thinks that there is no particular group in mind, and there's a few reasons why. Uh, one is there's a pretty big tonal difference between Colossians and a letter that very clearly is going after a group of false teachers. So like, if we compare this with Galatians, for instance, Galatians is extremely different from Colossians in its tone and the clarity with which it calls out individual teachers. One big difference is that Galatians immediately launches right into the denunciation of this false gospel and false teachers, whereas Colossians starts a lot more like the rest of Paul's letters do. It starts with a prayer and a passage of thanksgiving, 
and uh, leads into this long hymn. And then o- only then does Paul get around to and also don't do these things. You know, Galatians is completely different. People have often pointed to the fact that Galatians is missing the thanksgiving and prayer that's at the beginning of all of the other Paul's letters. And that's evidence that the Galatian church is doing things that Paul is very unhappy with and may have already fallen to Paul's opponents. Right. Another piece of evidence is that people who've argued that the Colossian hymn is uh, written in response to people with with a Christology that Paul does not subscribe to, it's hard to prove that the Colossian hymn is clearly written against somebody. The fact that it has an exalted view of Christ does not necessarily mean it is written to someone who does not have an exalted view of Christ. So if we compare the tone of the Colossian hymn to, say, Hebrews 1, uh, Hebrews 1 clearly, it, it clearly is intended to express that Jesus is supreme over angels and is designed to argue against people who might not have that view. That's not nearly as clear in Colossians, which just sort of celebrates the supremacy of Christ over all things. It's not intended to argue to get you to accept that. And the supremacy of Christ to all things is part of Colossians soteriology. Colossians is saying that we have been rescued by Christ from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. Celebrating Jesus's power in creation and the ultimate end of creation to be reconciled to Jesus is supportive of the general soteriological layout of the letter. And why that's important is because if you can explain a feature as part of the theological logic of a letter, you don't have any reason to posit another element. You don't have any reason to posit that this is this is a rejection of what the opponents were teaching. <laughs> Reminiscent of our Martin episode, what we're looking for is things that don't really make sense by themselves without supplying the interlocutor, without imagining what the opponents must have said that Paul is responding to. And that's just not the case here. Um, this makes perfect sense as part of the theology of Colossians. You don't need to infer a opponent. Yeah. When we look at the warnings of chapter two and compare them with the uh, with the pros in Galatians, we can also see that the things that Paul is warning people to stay away from are a lot more generic and a lot more um, just sort of general proverbs for Christian living than an attack on a specific view like you have in Galatians. Uh, one one huge part of this is the fact that for the most part, Paul's actually really positive about the Colossians faith, uh, which is not true in Galatians at all. In Galatians, Paul is constantly, you know, how are you? I am astonished that you have backslid and like, there's a lot of disbelief and anger. But for the most part, you know, Paul doesn't talk this way about the Colossians. In chapter 2, verse 5 and 7, he talks about them being rooted and established and bearing fruit in the faith. And this is couched alongside this sort of general pastoral advice. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 8, Paul tells them, see that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. Chapter 2, verse 6 says, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food or drink or observing festivals. These are just sort of these general, you know, don't do these things. You know, like, you don't need to worry about this stuff. Whereas if you compare it with uh, Galatians 4.19, very different tone. Uh, here Paul says, My little children for whom I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I were present with you now and could change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Or um, this is very particular strident, urgent warning against doing this specific thing instead of this general, you know. Yep. Don't let anyone make you feel bad about not practicing this festival. You know, it's a very different tone. In chapter 2, verse 20 in Colossians, Paul does seem to be getting a little bit more specific, but Hooker pushes back on this. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as though you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So there is, a, you know, totally here, at least in this translation, it does sound a little bit like Paul is worried about someone who is specifically submitting to these certain don't touch, don't taste, don't 
handle uh, regulations. Hooker points out that Paul says that the Galatians, by practicing law, are subjecting themselves or enslaving themselves to the stoicheia of the universe. And this almost certainly is not how the Galatians would have represented themselves. Um, this is almost certainly a polemical attack that by doing this, it's as if they were re-enslaving themselves to the idols um, that they as Gentiles used to worship. So if Paul can do that in Galatians, what's to say that's not what he's doing here in Colossians as well? People who try to reconstruct the Colossian heresy point at these passages about elemental spirits and enslavement and the kingdoms of darkness and suggest that this somehow represents what his opponents must have taught. But what's to say that Paul isn't just libeling law observance or the traditional pressures that living alongside Jewish Christians would have exerted and characterizing that as, as slavery to elemental spirits in the same way as he does in Galatians. But Hooker also argues that you can also just read this as more of a hypothetical, like wh- not why are you submitting yourselves, but why submit yourselves? This is more of a hypothetical question um, instead of a specific instruction or challenge. She argues that this re- refers to a, a generalized pressure for pagan converts who are now practicing this, you know, this Christian religion and to replace pagan ritual with asceticism and Jewish worship practices. And Paul's saying you don't need that. All this together indicates there really isn't a specific group of false teachers that's being targeted in Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's more that uh, Paul is concerned about generalized pressure to practice Jewish worship practices or asceticism as a supplement to the Christian life, and Paul arguing that young Christians who have just converted from paganism don't need to bother with this stuff. So Hooker's article is more of a walking exegesis through the piece than it is a stage one, stage two, stage three argument. That said, if I were to impose uh, the structure of an argument upon an article that is, you know, better read through than my summary, it would be that we don't have a specific reference to incoming false teachers, and we don't have any group that quite matches the description, and we have good reason to think that the pressures that she describes, or just the, the notion that the world is full of other powers and authorities are really, really general things that everyone in the ancient world experienced or believed in. There's a wide-ranging ascetic impulse throughout antiquity. You don't need a specific group to bring about an ascetic impulse. You don't need a specific false teaching or doctrine to come in to believe that there are powers that animate this world. Um, These are things that are ubiquitous in the Greco-Roman world. And so she says, because we don't need to posit a interlocutor to understand these parts of Paul's argument, like the Christological hymn or these references to elemental spirits, there's no real reason to posit a specific opponent. Um, Instead, the most plausible reading is just that there are these generalized pressures that are everywhere in the ancient world. Yeah, uh, so thanks for listening. Uh, a review. It's easy. Open your podcast app, find our show, scroll down, hit five stars, more people will find us. Leave us a positive review, though. Yeah, you can only leave five-star reviews. You can find more about us on Twitter at Newt, N-E-W-T, review, or email us at newtestamentreview at gmail.com. Thanks to Mitch and Luke and all the guys from Carnegie for letting us use their song in the intro and outro music of the podcast. You should check them out. I've seen bright.
brighter stars than you. Bye.